And with no further ado, I want to introduce to you, we've been doing Modern Family, Healthy Family. And we've, we've kind of given you some tools, hopefully, to create a healthy environment around your home, around your family, and life. But today, we're going to take a kind of an opposite route. And we're going to say, what happens when it's not working like it's supposed to? What happens if it stops working altogether? And so, from New Source Counseling, I'd like to, you to make welcome Annie King and Tony Mosley. Would you guys please come? Morning. Let me get settled here with all my stuff. It's so good. It's been so good to be with you this morning. Um, just, just to be here to worship, but also just to. Um, I want to thank you because God told you to do exactly what I needed. I'm praying for some wayward sons of mine, and I thank you for um, allowing me to have the opportunity to kind of lift them up today. So thank you, Aaron, for that. I know that. Um, God's doing something. I don't know what always, but God's doing something. Um, you know, it's good to be here. You know, Tony and I feel honored that, that Pastor Aaron has asked us to share with you today. And as he and I were talking, we figured that um, we both could probably go on about an hour each if that would be all right. <laughs> uh, but seriously, Aaron did give us some, a specific time, so we will, we will be true to that. Um, I'd like to start... By reading from Matthew today, uh, Matthew 14:22. It says 28 in your notes, but I'm only going to read through 27. And um, Aaron had told me that you use the New Living Translation, so I have um, a copy of that here. So I'll be reading from that translation. Verse 22. It says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. While he sent the people home, after sending them home, he went up to the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. And in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once and said, don't be afraid, he said, take courage. I am here. I'm just returning from a, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. It was an amazing trip. Our group was blessed to have the opportunity to walk where Jesus walked. And on Friday, November the 8th, 2013, just two weeks ago today, I was sitting on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And many of you may know that my husband Kurt is a pastor, and it was his privilege to preach a sermon from a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So as I sat there on the Sea of Galilee, I knew I would be here today. And so you all were on my mind as I listened to my husband preach. And he made a point that day on that boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee that really pulled together the thoughts I want to share with you today. If you look with me at that scripture, you'll notice that it says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. So what did the disciples do? 
Well, it seems to me they did what Jesus asked them to do. They were obedient to him. You know, we don't read anywhere that they argued among themselves or that they protested these instructions. But the point Kurt made and the point I want us to hear today, that even in doing exactly what Jesus would have them to do, a strong wind arose and they began fighting heavy waves. So keep that in mind as I read to you one of the promises of Jesus. John 16:33 says this, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. The NIV says, in this world you will have trouble. And Eugene Peterson puts it this way, I've told you all this, that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart, I have conquered the world. You know, when we're hurting, when we're in pain, when it feels like our world is just crumbling around us, when we just aren't where we thought we would be, we often ask, why me, Lord? When we experience the loss of a loved one, the death of a child, grief, loss of a job, disability, debt, crime, lost hope, lost peace, lost friendship, illness, sadness, depression, mental illness, chronic pain, we find ourselves asking, why me? And yet here we see that Jesus made a very clear promise to us. In this world, you will have trouble. And we know, really, that this list that I've given to you is just a fraction of that trouble that Jesus was talking about. We all know that there's trouble in the world. But there's also trouble in my world, and there's trouble in your world. You know, and it's when it comes so close to home that we begin to struggle with, why me? But if we really look at, at it, we begin to see that in this world... It's not so much a question of if as a question of when we have trouble. It's not so much a question of why me, but more of a question of why not me? So it's helpful to note that pain and tragedy are very personal. You know, it can be helpful to bring perspective to compare our pain with others. As long as we're not minimizing our own pain. Because what's deeply distressing to me may not be so for you, and what's deeply distressing for you may not be so for me. You know, I had a client a few years ago who was struggling to make sense of her own childhood. And she'd been, spent years talking to people who basically just downplayed her pain and told her to get over it. And when she came to me, she was beaten down. She looked old. She was tired, and she cried the entire hour as she shared her pain. And I listened. And I validated her feelings, and I let her talk. You know, she came back the next week. It was like I was looking at another person. She looked younger. And she said to me that feeling validated had made all the difference. She said no one had ever really listened to her. And the thing is, we can do this for ourselves. And it's important that we do. It's important for us to recognize our pain and to give ourselves permission to feel it. Saying to myself, oh, it isn't that bad, isn't always helpful. 
Downplaying our pain is just the opposite of validating ourselves. My daughter is a junior at Bowling Green State University, and um, she's a double major and a minor. She's a, I call her an overachiever. She says she's not an overachiever. She says she's just an achiever. So um, anyway, sometimes that workload can get daunting for her, and she will call me pretty much weekly, especially as we're coming towards the end of the semester, and she often will say, Mom, I'm on the struggle bus. And whenever she's struggling, she's on the struggle bus. But as we look at Matthew 14, we see that the disciples were on the struggle boat. They were struggling against the waves and the wind. And it's not because they were outside of God's will. It wasn't because they did not obey his commandment to go to the other side. They were just struggling. Because in this world, you will have trouble. And it's important to recognize the wind and waves in our lives. When we give ourselves permission to feel frustrated and overwhelmed and disappointed and discouraged or even angry, we can feel a little bit better. Validating our feelings is not wallering in self-pity. Um, I'm from southern Ohio, so I can say wallering. Um, it's just acknowledging the truth and accepting it. In this world, you will have trouble. You may be familiar with the serenity prayer that was written by Reinhold Neighbor in um, 1943. I want to read that to you. You're welcome to close your eyes and, and, and say it as a prayer with me, or you can read along with me. But it says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world, as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. You know, I've known that prayer since I was in junior high. Uh, when my best friend's dad joined AA to address his own addiction to alcohol. Her parents' car had a copy of that prayer on the dashboard. And years later, when she started driving, that prayer was still there. The part to pay particular attention to is in the middle where it says, taking as Jesus did this sinful world, not this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Um, acceptance does not equal approval. It's one thing to accept my life as it is. It's in something entirely different, different to approve it or even to like it. Niebuhr captures this idea very well, that if we validate our feelings and accept our circumstances for what we are, for what they are, we are moving towards a why-not-me stance. As we continue to think about ourselves on that boat, on that struggle boat, when we realize that this is not what we signed up for, it's important to really put into practice the first few lines of the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, we kind of talked about accepting life as it is, not as we would want it to be. 
Now let's think about the second line here. What can I actually change? What do I have control over? You know, when we're hurting, when we're stressed, when we're overwhelmed, when we're discouraged, when we're angry, the one thing and the only thing we can really control is me. Um, What happens is when I'm super stressed, I forget that. And I start trying to control everything else. Um, I start trying to do things for other people that they can do for themselves. I start trying to manipulate things so that they'll go the way I want them to. I bark out orders to adults who are not under my authority. I'm good at that one. And I do all these things so that I'll feel better, so I'll feel more in control. But what if instead of controlling those around me, I just started trying to control me? I could focus on how I'm feeling. I could take responsibility for myself, and I could calm myself down. I can do what, what, what us therapists like to call self-soothing. Um, you know, I always say, if it's happening in here, it's my responsibility. Um, I can watch what I say with my mouth. That's something I can do. I can watch what I say with my mouth. Um, and I can avoid making any knee-jerk decisions. Because sometimes we want to jump to making a decision really quick just in order to make ourselves feel better. Um, I can monitor my self-talk. That's what goes on inside of here. That's the words that I say to myself inside of here. I can start to monitor that. And what I'm saying to myself, is it making it better or is it making it worse? I can also monitor my self-talk to see if um, what I'm saying is true. When my kids were really little, and I have a 22, 20, 18, and 14-year-old, Um, But when they were really little, we camped a lot in a tent, and I was just frazzled. I think I had a two- and a four-year-old, and they're running around the tent. And I was grumpy, and I was tired, and I just yelled at them and said, if you keep running around that tent, you're going to trip over the ropes there and knock it down, and we will have nowhere to sleep tonight. And... um, when it came out, it, didn't, it sounded a little crazy, but in my head, I was serious. And my husband just looked at me and he said, you know, uh, if they knock down the tent, we'll just put it back up. <laughs> and um, I know that's a silly example, but isn't that what we do when we're upset? We make these unrealistic predictions about the future that leave us feeling more hopeless. So check your self-talk and see if what you're saying is true. It goes on and says, God grant me the the wisdom to know the difference. I think that's a key, isn't it? What can I control? What can I not control? You know, flying back from Tel Aviv was 12 hours in a small seat. And I don't have any control of the airlines or the people who built that plane to decide how much space a human being needs for 12 hours. Um, I would suggest they need a little bit more. Um, I didn't have any control over the fact that it was 12 hours to come back, but only 10 hours to get there. So someone else understands that, but I don't. Um, I didn't have any control that I got the one seat on the entire plane that that little button that lets you go back one inch didn't work. The button was gone. There was a hole there. So I had to sit straight up for 12 hours. I didn't have any control that I was in the middle of the plane. 
not on the ends. And then I was sitting by a stranger who was a lovely young man and was kind of concerned about me and asked me several times if I needed to get out. He was very sweet, very kind. But I didn't have control over that. But what I could control was my self-talk and what was going on inside of here. You know, what would have happened if I just said, I can't stand this. I can't breathe. I can't, I'm not going to make it. For one thing, it would have been far more miserable for the people around me and probably far more miserable for myself. So I watched a movie. I read my book. I tried to sleep. I did several puzzles. Um, I always get a puzzle book when I have to fly. Um, so knowing the difference is understanding that I'm in control of me. You know, one of the questions we ask when we find ourselves in the middle of a sea and the wind is kicking up, and the waves are battering our small boat, we find ourselves on that struggle boat, and we often ask, why me, Lord? We can choose to ask a more accurate question. Why not me? And although this simple change of language does not fix things, it can take out the intensity and can leave us feeling better. The day I was on the Sea of Galilee was a smooth, sunshiny day. There was no waves and no wind. I didn't do anything to deserve that pleasant trip, but I sure enjoyed it. But this is not always the case, because sometimes we find ourselves experiencing that trouble that Jesus warned us about. We experience that sadness, the disappointment, the discouragement, the loneliness, the grief, and all sorts of pain. And we find ourselves struggling and we may not have done anything to deserve it, but nonetheless, the winds rise up and we find ourselves fighting those heavy waves. We find ourselves on the struggle boat. But instead of asking, why me? We can start to ask a new question. Why not me? I've spent some time looking at changing our question from why me to why not me. Now, Tony's going to walk you through a scriptural approach to living on that struggle boat. Thank you very much. I also have stuff. Good morning. It's good to be with you, be a part of uh, your worship service this morning. I send greetings from Circleville, Ohio, and uh, my dear friend Jack Hook is here this morning. I appreciate him being here. Um, I call him my friend because he has served me the best corn crab chowder ever for decades. Uh, <laughs> uh, and there's some other familiar faces, but I uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here this morning. And I just want to, you to think in terms of three words when we think about this idea of healthy recovering. You'll see them up there are three principles for healthy recovering, kind of working through our broken relationships, things like that. And the first, uh, the th those three words are pursuit, sacrifice, and forgiveness. Now, when I get to the scripture references this morning, I want you to 
understand they might seem a little unconventional to you as we think about this idea of recovery, but they really fit along the line of pursuit, sacrifice, and forgiveness. Now, I want you to think of these words or these principles not only in the context of the specific scripture that I will share with you in a few moments, but I want you to think of these words in light of what we would call the biblical narrative, not just that scripture itself, but what we see in scripture throughout scripture. So we're going to take a look at a a, a bit of scripture, but I want you to think of it in light of what the Bible tells us from start to finish. It is a full biblical narrative that I want you to think in light of, of pursuit, sacrifice, and forgiveness. And I want you to think of it this way also, and it's in the form of a question. What is God like? And the biblical story, the biblical narrative tells us that he pursues us, he sacrifices for us, and he forgives us. But then God has the audacity to tell us, be like me. What does it say? Be holy as I am holy. In other words, pursue, sacrifice, and forgive as I do. I want you to consider that first word, pursuit. Let's pull up the next uh, Scripture, you'll see the Scripture up there, and I'm going to turn and actually read it from the screen, so I'm not flipping around in the Scripture. But, And this is from the Song of Solomon, and this is going to seem like one of those very unconventional uh, passages of Scripture, but as you look at the Song of Solomon, which is very much a passage about pursuit, it's like these, uh, it's this, this Uh, male and female that are looking for one another, they're pursuing one another, they're anticipating one another. And you'll notice here it says, and she is speaking, one night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover, I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all its streets and squares. I will search for the one I love. So I searched everywhere but did not find him. The watchmen stopped me as they made their rounds, and I asked, have you seen the one I love? Then scarcely had I left them when I found my love. I caught and I held him tightly. Now, you can also think of this, you know, in modern day language, in modern day imagery, we think of those young Uh, couples and those beautiful people on uh, Dancing with the Stars, and there's just this tension and all this stuff going on between these people, you know. It's that kind Now, I want you to know, I have, I really don't watch uh, Dancing with the Stars. My wife does, and I read intellectual things on my iPad as it's happening. So, just so you know, keep that in mind. My wife is not well this morning, and I'm glad she did not come, so... But most experts, most experts in Scripture agree that this book can be viewed literally and symbolically or allegorically. Uh, 
And it's this idea of literally you see this pursuit of one another. You see this pursuit of a man and a woman towards one another in these very almost erotic kinds of moments in this Song of Solomon. But most experts would tell us it's also a microcosm of this idea of pursuit that you find as God pursues Israel, as Jesus pursues his church. You'll notice that she looked and she longed for the one that her heart loved. And she says, I will search, I will turn, and other, uh, let me paraphrase it a little bit. I'm going to go through the city and tear the city upside down until I find him. That's the kind of pursuit that we're talking about. When I found the one my heart loves, I held and would not let him go. This is not about two overheated adolescents. There's something else bigger going on here. Now, when we go to the New Testament, Jesus was asked this question. What is God like? And Jesus proceeded in that moment to talk in parables. And he spoke in these stories. And he said, God is like a shepherd who lost one sheep. And he went, he left 99, he went to find one. He's like a woman who lost a coin in her house. And in modern day imagery, it's like all of you ladies are tearing out your appliances and throwing them out on the street and tearing up the rugs and removing everything to find one coin. He's also like a lovesick father who waits at the end of the lane for his son to return. He's also like a crazy farmer who ends up going to the local unemployment lines and hiring workers. And he's crazy enough at the end of the day that whether you're hired at 9, whether you're hired at noon, or whether you're hired at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you get the same wage. Now, that's a little crazy if you ask me. But that's what God is like. He pursues us. And the Scripture is full of stories about pursuit. And think of it this way. Jesus spent three years with his disciples And after it was all said and done, he he dies, he is crucified, he is resurrected. And what does he do? He has the guts, the audacity to go back to those bunch of losers that basically had scattered. And he says to Peter, do you love me? And he says it three times. He asked three times. I also want you to consider another word. The second word that we have is sacrifice, found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. Again, very unconventional in some ways because we men love to quote this passage of Scripture. Don't we, guys? What's the one word we love to emphasize? We put it in capital letters. What's the word? Oh, I knew you'd, I knew you'd get that. Pretty good students. And further, submit to one another. 
out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. Now, there's a couple other translations, but I want you to notice verse 21. And furthermore, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A couple translations, be subject to one another in the love of the Messiah. Another says, place yourselves under each other's authority out of respect for Christ. If we are to submit or subject ourselves to one another, place ourselves under each other's authority, this will require an attitude of sacrifice to heal our brokenness, to heal our families, to heal our addictions. It requires a type of pursuit and giving that is sacrificial in nature. A type of love that is superior to anything that we have ever seen. The Greek word, kephale. I'm going back to my seminary days now, and I want to make you think I'm smart. Um, Kephale is a Greek word for head. And in this passage, the word kephale, Paul uses it for head. It means Christ is the head of the church, man is the head of the wife, but this does not mean control. Hear me, please. It means superior love as Christ loves the church as we love one another. It is a concept of superiority. If you want to love in a superior way, notice what Christ has done for the church. It does, it's all about sacrifice. What does that look like? If you, uh, I don't have it up here for you today, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to chapter 2 of Philippians, in verses 3 through 8, it says this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling. Instead, I want you to hear this, instead he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's what God is like. In our self-absorbed, throwaway culture, it is hard to understand sacrifice and what that really means. We all want our 15 minutes of fame. You know, we, we Facebook, we video, we... You know, I have a friend of mine, the very first Cleveland Browns 
game that I ever went to. I know there's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan in here somewhere. I saw his coat. Oh, there's a few. Get ready, guys, tonight, this afternoon. But, okay, think of it this way. A friend of ours was with us at that very first Cleveland Browns game that I ever sat in, and she was bound and determined to get on the Jumbotron. You know, she want, that was her goal for the day. I don't think she cared whether someone won or lost that day, but she wanted on the Jumbotron, so she, was, she had everything that she could put on to get the attention of the, of the cameraman, and you know what? She did. She got on the Jumbotron. We all want our 15 minutes or 15 seconds of, of, of fame. But it's hard to understand sacrifice in light of that. We don't talk about it much in our culture. But you know, it's interesting to me that in a lot of our movies that we see and that we go and watch, there is a theme of sacrifice. There is this theme of the hero or the heroine who gives herself up or who gives himself up for the good of the people. And I get this this kind of sense that maybe even the hot shots in Hollywood realize we need the reminders of sacrifice. One last word I want to share with you, and that is the word forgiveness. And in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter approaches Jesus and he asks this question. Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Right? No. Not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of this scripture reference. Matter of fact, I wish it wasn't in Scripture. You know, it's easy to follow Jesus in some ways. It's much harder to follow him down this pathway. If we were really honest, most of us are like Peter. We have limits. Don't you? We have limits to forgiveness. But here is Peter, the one we remember who, in a fit of anger and rage, cuts off Malchus's ear as he's defending the Lord, who's a pretty impulsive kind of guy. He said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive? And notice how he likes to control the conversation. Seven, right? Seven times. And Jesus said, no, it's ad infinitum. It's forever and ever and ever, over and over and over kind of thing. The greatest gift that we can receive and give to another human being is forgiveness. But it will be the hardest thing that you ever do. But when we begin to think about recovering, when we think about standing in the gap for our families and our children and our spouses and our parents and our aunts and uncles, when we think and we believe in that whole concept of doing that, we will have to face the aspect of, of forgiveness. Does forgiveness mean permission? No. Does forgiveness mean it's okay that you can continue to do that to me? No. You might be saying under your breath, but Tony, you don't know my story. And you're right, I don't. You don't know the brutality 
You don't know the abuse. You don't know the shame. You don't know what I've been through. And you're right. But let me ask you this question again. What is God like? He shows up on a seashore. In John chapter 21, he shows up after everything that he's been through with Peter. And he's baking a little fish and some bread. And he says to Peter, return. Do you love me? And he asks him three times and he says, return. And here he reinstates that man who absolutely denied him. Pursuit, sacrifice, and forgiveness. He expects no less from us. And it's the hardest thing that we will ever do. Annie and I see it every day in our offices where people are struggling with these issues. Before Pastor Aaron comes and finishes up our time together, I want to ask you three important questions. First one, am I open to pursuit and pursuing? What I mean by that is, you know, as a, I'm, a, I'm a Methodist, so as a good Methodist in a good theological way, we, John Wesley talked about this idea of prevenient grace. That's a fancy way for saying that all along and every minute and moment of the day, God is pursuing us. It's his prevenient grace that we don't even know about, that he pursues us inside and out. He knows everything about us, and just like those two beautiful people in the Song of Solomon. There's this passion and this draw. God is drawn that way to us. And let me ask you this. Are you open to being pursued? Because he's already doing it. And are you open to the idea of pursuing one another? Because in a, in a place like this, there are broken relationships. There are people that are distant There are people that are far away, and have you and are you willing to pursue one another? Am I loving and giving in a sacrificial way? Now, this is not about, you know, the wife comes to you and, hey, honey, I'd like to go shopping this afternoon, and your favorite football game is on, and, you know, and you... You know, you take, put on the sad face and you say, yeah, I'll do that, honey, just for you. I promise it. You know, it's not that kind of stuff. That's important. But it's deeper than that. It's this type of sacrifice that is all about superior love and grace. And have I put limitations on how much I will forgive? In a crowd like this, I can go and count them off. One, two, three, four, depression. One, two, three, four, depression. One, two, three, four, five, six, sexual abuse. You can count them off. They're there. They're in, these, in this room. We know that. And I know that it's very difficult to think about the concept of forgiveness. What is God like? He pursues us, He sacrifices, and He forgives. He expects no less from us. I did something special for all you folks. I bought a brand new shirt. My shirts were getting pretty ragged, so I bought a shirt, 
And I was putting that baby on, and after I got done getting dressed, I put my shoes on, and I started to tie my shoestrings. And then I realized they've been broken a few times, and I've retied them. And I just tie them back up, and I just keep reusing them. And I've done that three or four times on both sides. But here's what I know. Those shoestrings still work. No matter what they look like, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, the shoestrings still work. God has called us as his church to pursue, to sacrifice, and to forgive. Pastor Aaron.